lives in the course of protecting our freedoms. We declared our independence in July of 1776, but that didn't give us the experience of freedom. It took many, many wars. We're still fighting them. In fact, someone has calculated that we've lost uh, just about three million men and women in the course of protecting our freedoms. They're to be remembered with respect. Uh, they died for just causes. It occurred to me uh, that the real tragedy is not to die, it's to die for an unjust cause. Make sure, uh, as we think about Memorial Day, you and I are living and willing to die for just and righteous causes. That's the important thing. I also use Memorial Day to remember not only those who've passed in defense of our freedoms, but also the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, those who have served our country in the military and paid the ultimate price to have done so to obtain our political freedoms, not to be underestimated. But what the Lord Jesus did was designed to obtain our spiritual, eternal freedom. So the Bible says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free. Yeah, free indeed. So we pause to remember on this particular day. It's an important kind of a day. Um, maybe you have a loved one, a family member who's uh, passed in the service of our uh, country. If you're grieving even today, the absence of that person, I want you to feel the freedom to grieve. And coincidentally, if you believe in coincidences, the text before us right at the beginning invites legitimate grief over the loss of a loved one. Would you take a look at Genesis chapter 50 with me? Genesis 50. Uh, today we'll conclude our trek through Genesis. And next week, Lord willing, we'll begin a study in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thess. I started looking at it yesterday, and I'll tell you in advance, um, I got so caught up in verse 1 that uh, that's all we're going to cover next week. So if you want to read in advance, like even twice, you just read verse 1. Uh, it's just loaded with truth, and we're going to take it apart next week. So first, that's chapter 1, verse 1 next week. Here we are, Genesis uh, 50. Notice what it says. Then, always a time indicator. It presumes something went before. In this case, it's the death of Jacob. Then Joseph, that's his son, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him, openly grieving, unashamedly grieving. Uh, do you know that's a therapeutic thing to do? When you stuff emotions, they get buried alive, and they can come back to haunt you in other ways. You could even get physical symptoms uh, not all migraine headaches, asthma, and shortness of breath is due to um, emotions which are denied, but oftentimes they can aggravate even conditions such as that. And God wants us to cry. Do you know uh, when somebody we love dies, God expects us to cry? Did you know that? Sometimes we as Christians are reluctant because we think it's a sign of lack of faith. No, no, no. Crying is a sign of hurt feelings doesn't mean you lack faith. There's a difference between a crisis of faith, for sure, and a crisis of emotion. And even people of strong faith can suffer a crisis of emotion. Don't go underground. You know, my people don't uh, do a lot of things wrong, but one of the things we Jews do well 
is to grieve openly and unashamedly. And we don't put a time limit on it. When there's a grieving time in a Jewish family, uh, nobody goes over to the grieving person with a box of Kleenex saying, dry your tears. No, no, we don't want them to dry them, their tears. We want them to cry out their tears. It's helpful to them. You know, sometimes when you say to someone, dry your tears, it's because we are uncomfortable with their discomfort. Their discomfort makes us uncomfortable, so we want them to get over it. It's pretty selfish. So we just let uh, people uh, cry, snivel, make a mess of themselves, and just wipe it all up with their sleeve. What's the difference? Grief is not supposed to be a dignified thing. It's just a real thing. You know what's bad? Christian men think they shouldn't cry. Oh, my goodness. No, no, no. Real men cry. Have you ever seen a man cry? There's something about when a man cries, everyone follows suit. It's, it's as if that man has given permission to the rest to follow suit. So, so men, don't, don't buy into this, this stoicism, which is supposed to be a sign of manhood. It's not. Um, I went to a funeral uh, Friday for a police officer who was killed a few days ago. His name is Richard Martin, two children, a wife. Uh, he graduated from the same academy class as my son, class 209. So I knew him, and my son knew him well. So I went to pay my respects, and uh, one of his fellow officers stood up to eulogize him and could hardly go on. He started to cry. He's a tough guy, gun and this and that, you know, a guy you don't want to mess with, just crying. When he did, gave permission for the hundreds and hundreds of other uh, officers there and civilians to, to cry. It was a good thing to share the grief in common. So be careful. Joseph here weeps over his father's passing and commands his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. Israel? All of Israel? No, no, remember, that's another name for Jacob. <laughs> so they embalmed, they embalmed. So what's the deal with embalming? It, 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 it's not an Israelite thing. It's an Egyptian thing. But the Israelites are in Egypt. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans? To a certain extent. The Egyptians perfected the custom. They attached a lot of religiosity to it, however. Uh, it wasn't just to preserve the body. It was to preserve the body uh, for life in the afterlife. So how did they do it? Kind of gruesome. Uh, they take a hook-like instrument and stick it up the nose of the deceased and extract that way the deceased's brains come out through the Oh, by the way, so what do you like having for lunch today? You know what I'm saying? I think spaghetti is out. You know what I'm... That's not happening today. No spaghetti. So anyway, they would extract the brain, which would leave an empty brain cavity, and then they would take the brains, put it in a vessel to be buried with the deceased, you know. Then they would make an incision in the side and extract all the abdominal organs that way, empty out the abdominal cavity as well. And then they would treat the body for about seven days with salt and then wine and stuff like that. And, uh, that makes sense. What did you say? Was it the first autopsy? Yeah, it might have been the first, Carol. <laughs> might have been the first autopsy. And then they would wrap the body in lots and lots of white cloth. They would mummify it, put it in a uh, casket, and preserve it. 
you perhaps have seen Egyptian mummies in various museums today. Unbelievable how good they were at it. But it's not an Israelite custom. In fact, Genesis 50 gives an account of the only two Hebrews who were embalmed, at least uh, mentioned as ones who were embalmed in the Bible. And the first was, was Jacob, Joseph's dad. And later you'll see uh, Joseph himself was embalmed. However, they didn't have the embalmers do the embalming. Notice verse 2, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to do the embalming. Now, these are two different career directions. You can become an embalmer or you can become a physician, one or the other. You would think that Joseph would have enlisted the services of the embalmers to do the embalming, but he didn't. He chose the physicians. Why? I'm just throwing this out. If you don't like it, just leave it behind. Uh, the practice of embalming was associated with a whole bunch of Egyptian mysticism, occult practices, and religiosity. Well, that's not the part Joseph wanted. He simply wanted to preserve his dad's body. So he had the physicians do it rather than the embalmers, who were priests. They were religious people, you see what I mean? And he wanted his dad's body to be embalmed for reasons you will see in just a few moments. So verse 3, 40 days were required for it. For such is the period required for embalming. So it's quite an elaborate process. On average, it would take the Egyptians 40 days to embalm someone. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Whoa. They wept for a Jewish guy. 70 days. He wasn't an Egyptian. He was a shepherd from a foreign country. He's a foreign guy. And something moved the Egyptians to mourn for him 70 days. Just to show you what a great sign of respect this is, if... Egyptian royalty died, including the pharaoh. Records tell us you would mourn for 72 days. So they mourned for this Jewish guy just two days short of the respect you would show to royalty. Why? Well, I think they honored the father because of the son. They honored Jacob because of Joseph, which leads to this application. That's what business we're supposed to be in. We're supposed to be living in such fashion that people... Honor the father because of his sons and daughters. One such as you and I. That's the goal. So that, that's what happened. And when the days of mourning for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I found favor in your sight, speak to Pharaoh. Do you find anything unusual about that, what we just read in verse 4? I found something when I was studying this thing, maybe. Here's the deal. Joseph's a big shot, right? He's the second in command. He's like the prime minister. Don't you think he had private audiences with Pharaoh before now? Don't you think they spoke directly a lot? Why is uh, Joseph doing this now through an intermediary? He speaks to the household of Pharaoh, saying to them, speak to Pharaoh for me. Well, that caught my attention. Do you have any idea why he did it this way instead of what you would expect to be the normal way. That is, he just asked for a direct audience with Pharaoh. Any thoughts on why this was done? I mean, it's not a big deal. It's just something to think about. When you read the Bible, uh, it's not for you or me to determine what's big and what's small. Uh, ask questions. Slow down. Reflect. So it just, it just gave me cause for thinking why he might have done this. Any, anybody have any thoughts? Yeah, Mike? Mike, my Italian friend, right on target, baby. 
That is exactly it. He's grieving. He's in a period of mourning. That would perhaps have been offensive to Pharaoh. And when the Jews grieved, they grew their hair, facial hair and stuff. You, during grief, you avoid personal adornment. Doesn't mean you don't take showers and stuff, but you don't go out of your way to slop on eight pounds of makeup and stuff. You just let your hair go. But for the Egyptians in the day, facial hair was an offense. So the Jewish guy is not going to go in to Pharaoh, show disrespect with all the facial hair. So that's, that's probably why he did it through others. So then verse 5, my father made me swear, saying, behold, I'm about to die. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I'll return. So Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, possessed a little bit of real estate in, the, in, the, in the, the Holy Land, in Canaan. It was a burial plot, not much. But it had such significance to him, he made sure his son knew, don't bury me in Egypt. Why? Well, he had been in Egypt, but his heart was in the land of promise. That ought to be true for you and I, too. And metaphorically speaking, the world is Egypt, and uh, Canaan is the place of promise, metaphorically speaking. So we're in Egypt, but we're not of Egypt. And as a symbol of it, Jacob wants his people to know, don't bury me here. Take me back to the place, which is the place, land, uh, the land that God has promised to our people. So that's kind of what's going on here. And Pharaoh said, verse 6, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. That's remarkable. You know why? Pharaoh prospered with Joseph in his employ. I mean, he really rescued Egypt and stuff like that. It would have been understandable for Pharaoh to say to this Jewish guy, you're not going anywhere. You see, because but the Jewish guy might have been tempted not to come back. But he doesn't do that. Pharaoh seems to trust Joseph and his words when Joseph said, I will return. Well, let me tell you, there's a far greater son, <laughs> a far greater one who's also given us a promise of return. You believe him? Yeah, his name is Jesus. He's coming too. When? We don't know. Therefore, don't buy books purporting to tell you when. You crazy? Unless you're buying them to balance out your refrigerator, you stick it on the refrigerator, that's okay. Come on, guys, don't, don't be buying those things. You know, as a rule, I'm, I'm nervous about books that have in the title, The Mystery of, The Hidden Secret of. Ah, the Bible is an open book. It's a book of revelation. God wants to reveal truth to his people, not conceal truth. Be careful about those who have found something. None of else uh, the rest of us see. You know what we're doing right here? We're all reading Genesis 50. Not one of us has more access to it than another. Give the text its plain meaning, and you'll get meaning. Don't read super levels of hidden meaning into it that God has only shown to an elite few. Come on. That's called cultic behavior. That's what a cult is. The leader of the cult is privy to information. Nobody else is. That's not the way it works. It's a level playing field in the body of Christ. I don't know if you knew that. So anyway, watch out for the books. Man, crazy stuff coming. All right. So anyway, um, verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father. Now notice this. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, elders, and elders of the land of Egypt, all his household of Joseph and brothers and 
fathers have, they only left their little ones, kind of like a pledge, we're coming back. They left their kids there, free babysitting, I guess, in Egypt. Flocks and herds in the land of God. And they went up uh, also with him, chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians uh, sent a military escort. And it was a great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, do you know where Atad is? Yeah, nobody does. It says uh, uh, on the other side of the Jordan. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, the east side as opposed to the west side. From the Egyptian perspective, it could be either side of the Jordan. Most likely, it was on the east side of Jordan in what would be now modern-day Jordan. That seems to be the very route the Israelites will take, as told us in Exodus. They seem to go around the other side of the Jordan and come back into the, into the land. So, but we, we don't know where Todd is, but we know it means thorns or brambles. That's what it means. So what happened is they lamented there with a great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. A threshing floor is a level area, and that's a good place to pause and weep, grieve. So that's what they did for seven days. As a result of this, we Jews have something called sitting shiva, uh, from the word seven. Shiva, shiva means seven in Hebrew, based on texts like this. So we have a formal period of mourning for seven days. Does not mean your grief ends at that point? But it means uh, those who've lost a loved one open their home to friends and family, guests. You don't need an appointment. You come in any time. And there's always people that you usually bring a food item, you know, cookies or something like that. And people sit around. Sometimes you'll hear the sounds of laughter. Sometimes the laughter will give way to crying. That's the ebb and flow of emotion. Isn't it like that? You sit around and you think about a departed loved one. And, and sometimes you laugh. You say, oh, man. Do you remember the time when he... And you laugh. And then you cry. And you get confused about that because that's how emotions are. Uh, emotions are not thoughts. Did you know that? Thoughts should be logical and rational. Emotions are not, are not usually informed by logic. <laughs> emotions just happen... Let them happen within reason, within reason. So we do this for like seven days. Sometimes the grieving family, they'll put uh, uh, coverings, cloth over the mirrors because you're not supposed to give yourself to adornment. So no makeup and stuff like that. Sometimes the grieving people sit on hard wooden chairs, uh, not comfortable chairs. Sometimes they cut their garments, rent their clothes. Have You know about that? That's why people say, you Jews are so rich, you're always renting your clothes. Have you heard that? Yeah. So anyway, the, it means to cut your clothes. So uh, that's a period of mourning. And as I mentioned, we do it pretty well. And um, it's healthier. It's healthier. Do we get over? No. The goal is not to get over the absence of someone. Where did we come up with that? What a, what a slap in the face of the loved one. I'm over you. What? No, no, no. You don't get over. You, you, you learn to manage. <coughs> you manage your grief that way. The intensity uh, of, of, the, of the grief subsides. <coughs> so you can function the same way. No, it's the new normal. You shouldn't set unrealistic objectives. I want to be the way I used to. It's not going to be that way. It doesn't mean life is over for you and you can't function. You have to function in terms of a new normal, a new normal. 
So anyway, that's kind of what they do. So verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, <coughs> saw the morning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous morning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. That means the place of mourning for the Egyptians. And thus his sons did for him as he charged them. His sons cared. Holy moly, Michael, thank you, baby. After I insult your Italian background, you give me... How about some pizza? <laughs> Thank you, Mike, baby. That's my friend, Mike. I should have had an official taster, you know what I mean? Beware, beware of Italians bearing. <laughs> Cup bearers, exactly. Biblical. Thank you, bro. By the way, you should know, I do not only offend Italians. Equal opportunity offender. So uh, they buried him, according to verse 13, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought as a burial site. The first purchased parcel of land in the Holy Land by Abraham was a burial site, which is why we Jews, not Jews, you do too, take very seriously paying respect for the deceased. Proper burial, very, very important. So that's what they do. This would be in present-day Hebron or Hebron. This is the burial place of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob wants to be buried there. So after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. He kept his word. He and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now get this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us? And pass back in full for all the wrong we did to him. Whoa. Holy Toledo. Dad is gone out of the way. They're thinking, brother, oh, man, we gave him a hard time. We threw him in a pit. We sold him as a slave. You know, we made up some story. We told our dad a wild animal killed him. You know, here's his coat of many colors. You know, all this kind of stuff. Oh, no, he gets to be big shot in Egypt. He's going he's gonna to nail us. You know what they're afraid of? justice. So are you and I. We're afraid of justice. We know a just God has a case against us. I mean, we, we rebelled against our brother, Jesus. You know, we, we turned from him for crying out loud, and just as they did to Joseph. And we, oh, surely God is going to get us for this. Well, now, Joseph forgave these guys 17 years ago. Do you know for 17 years, they're still laboring under the misconception, he may still hold it against them. You know why they did that? Just like us, they don't get grace. They don't get grace. They get justice. They understand that. You do this, I do that. But they don't get grace. Neither do we. Uh, that's why so many of us are miserable. What can I tell you? I mean, we've been saved by grace. But we haven't really been fully great, fully gospelized, fully good news. We think, yeah, we got saved by grace, but since I got saved, I've done a lot of bad stuff. Surely, big brother Jesus is out to get me. Well, when you think someone has a case against you, you don't want to hang out with that person, do you? You want, you want to avoid that person, which is why so many of us who drag ourselves to church on Sunday don't have much more to do with Jesus the rest of the week. We don't think we're on good speaking terms with him. See, we think we have a... He has a case against us. 
It's not true. So anyway, so look what happens. Uh, so they send the message to Joseph. They don't even think they can speak to him directly. They send the message to Joseph saying, your father. What do you mean your father? Why not our dad? What's up? I'll tell you why. They want to remind Joseph of his connection to, their, to the father and they, because he may not have him. They think he doesn't have a close connection to them anymore. You see this? Your father, this is what your father charged us. He said, you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. They're reminding Joseph of what they say their father said to Joseph. Joseph let him off the hook. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. Why do you think he cried? What was the the, the source of the tears? What's up? Give, give this some thought. This is a big one. And while you do that, I shall take a sip of Italian water. <laughs> Raymond, you're absolutely right. That is, oh, she did. <laughs> That's good. Then you should keep her. She gave you the right answer. That is true. He was distressed because they miss, they underestimated his willingness to forgive. They underestimated his love. They saw their wrongdoing, and they thought their wrongdoing was greater than his love. I'll tell you what distresses you and me more than anything, if you have kids, grandkids, or friend. It's when that person whom you love doubts your love. Listen, if that person rebelled, robbed the bank, did this, that, the other thing, it would distress you, but not as much as when that person whom you love doesn't believe it. It makes you cry. That's what happened here. That's what we do to God. When we as Christians, they were forgiven 17 years ago. When were you forgiven? For me, September 5th, 1973, in a military barracks. I accepted the Lord Jesus. That's a long time ago, right? That's when he took all my sin, cast it behind his back. When, when did it happen with you? Folks, I'm telling you, it, it makes God cry when we underestimate his willingness to forgive us totally and completely. When Jesus procured our forgiveness, remember he said it's finished? It's finished. Remember he said that from the cross? Paid in full? But we can't buy that. We understand justice. We don't understand grace. The biggest battle in the Christian life is not do more Bible reading, do more praying, do more giving, Those are all good things. The biggest battle is do more resting in the grace of Jesus Christ. Why do you think it says in Hebrews, labor so as to enter into rest? You ever hear such a crazy thing? We just got back from uh, Jerusalem. On the Sabbath, everything shuts down. Sabbath. My people are very zealous about observing that particular day. That's not the problem. But the real Sabbath is not a day. It's a lifestyle. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, work hard at resting so that you can enter into Sabbath rest. Isn't it an irony that you have to work hard at resting? No, it's not. Because we're so filled with pride, we think we have to keep working for God's favor. But you have it by grace. It's all of grace. And if it's not all of grace, it's not grace at all. And it causes the God of all grace to weep. Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives. Some of us were there just last. When were we there, Dave, Johnny, 
Well, we, I don't know, a week ago? Seems like a, a long time ago. We stood in the Mount of Olives. We looked across the Kidron Valley into the old city. We had the same vantage point the Lord did. When it says, uh, he said, oh, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a mothering hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. And Jesus wept. He did not weep over the sin in the city. He knew it was there. He wept over the unwillingness of sinners to accept his forgiveness. That's what caused him to weep. And nothing's changed with us. He has an approach to our sin. It's called his blood. Our sin is really not the issue. It's our pride in thinking we can out-sin the grace of God. Pride. But the Bible says where sin abounds, I know there's plenty of it. I mean, look around. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It says, though we be unfaithful, we are, he remains angry. He remains faithful. Joseph wept. Jesus weeps. I'll tell you what the battle is for you and I as Christians. Stop looking around and finding out what you're not doing that others are doing. And start working harder at entering into Sabbath rest. Why? To take it easy and be lazy? No, 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 no. The greatest motivator for productivity and fruitfulness in the Christian life is to be motivated by God's love for us, not fearing God. Fear is a, it will motivate you, but it's a horrible motivator. The Bible says, for the love of Christ, his love towards us, is what constrains us. What causes us to live, to move, to do? It's the love of Christ for us. And when we don't respond to his love, he weeps. It denigrates his character. When we think our sinful character is in a greater volume than his gracious character, and he weeps. So we were in Israel. You want religion? Go to Israel. I mean every kind of religion. I'm not talking about just the Jewish stuff. You got the Muslim stuff. And you got the so-called Christian stuff, but it isn't. You got Baha'i stuff and this stuff. and I mean, you got all the religion in the world. You got people wearing all kinds of different outfits, you know. It's almost like they're competing to see who can get like the biggest, ugliest black hat. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a good deal because someone like four feet high can look like seven feet with these hats. That's kind of a cool deal. Uh, you know, who could wear like the biggest crosses? I don't know how some of these people wear these around their neck. I mean, I'm going to go back to Israel as a chiropractor. <laughs> we get that big, 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 big cross. You know, and it's like they're competing with one another. Who could be most vocal about praying and most energetic? Praying to bricks and walls and throwing yourself. There's like a stone at a church there. People think the Lord's body was light on they come from all over the world and they kiss it and stuff like that. You talk about like the germ thing. <laughs> Everyone's kissing that. Oh, my goodness. It's spooky. If you want religion, you go there. But you know what Paul says? He said, I'm concerned about y'all. He's writing to Christians. 
lest your minds be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Work hard at entering at the Sabbath rest. Rest. Walk, work hard at walking simply and devotedly with the Lord Jesus. Who is, here's the deal. Do you know God is not angry with you if you're, if you're in Christ Jesus? You say, well, I'm a saved person. You ever think it's saved from what? You ever ask, can you answer that question? Here it is. Saved from the wrath of God. That's what you're saved from. How'd you get saved from the wrath of God? He poured it out on his own son. That's why his own son cried out, my God, my God. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you forsaking me? That's Jesus with our sin on him. Dying with our sin on him so we can die without sin on us. Paul said, don't be distracted by all this religiosity and stuff. Let me want to tell you something. I got up this morning because, you know, it's Sunday. You have to get up. And uh, the worst part of the day for me is getting dressed. Not that I'm against clothes. We should wear them. I'm in favor. But picking them out drives me nuts. You know, my wife, my wife said, well, that's why on Saturday night, do you notice? I pick out my clothes and I'm going to wear on Sunday on Saturday night. What in the, who does, what are you talking are you kidding me, man? On Saturday night, I'm like watching TV. I'm not picking out clothes. I'm crying out loud. I mean, but anyway, that's what she did. So I get up Sunday, but I gotta, I gotta pick out clothes. Well, I don't know. I don't clothes. Just throw something on there. So as you can see, I threw on this. It's actually probably a woman's shirt as I look at it. I mean, what self-respecting man wears a color like this? I don't know what the. What color is this? What is this? Is this? What is it? Salmon. salmon? I'm wearing a salmon-colored shirt. I'm I'm disgusted with myself now. You couldn't say like orange? Would orange kill you? I'm wearing salmon. Oh, I'm crying out loud. Okay, so so. Oh, look what Alan's doing. I don't like Alan. Look what he's doing. Look, look, look. I'm gonna be. Gonna be color coordinated. Oh, look at Johnny's hat! How could you not look at Johnny's hat? Look at Johnny's. We went to Israel together, and Johnny was such a good person. She left her hats back here. Thank you so much. Yeah, but that would go good. So, but here's the deal. So, I don't have vestments. I don't have. I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking them. Don't misunderstand. I'm just telling you. I'm just a slob. I wore this deal because it's, it covers love handles. You know what I'm saying? You got two choices. You can lose weight or get bigger clothing. So I got them. So you know, I get in a car. It's just a car. There's like no fancy deal. And and I'm talking to God. Oh God, you know, it'd be really good if you could help me to do what I'm supposed to do today. I can always hear God saying, well, it's about time you got around to me because you can't do what you're about, you need to do today, and, but I'll help you. But anyway, so I'm in the car and all this. is like no incense or anything like that. There are smells. It was fishy smell from my salmon <laughs> shirt. But anyway, I mean, here's my point. Um, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Not religious liturgy, this, that, the other thing personal relationship with a God who's not angry with us. You know why Joseph wept? I'll tell you why. They let their perceived, they let his perceived anger separate them from him. They had to send somebody else to talk to him. 
when he gave them direct access. He, he wept. He said, why? I established a connection through forgiveness with you. What? There's nothing that needs to be in the way. And he wept over that. So too for us, you know, God's place is called a throne of grace. And we're told to approach the throne of grace with fear and trepidation, with boldness. Why? That we may find grace and mercy to help in times of need. But if you perceive that we'll find anger, you don't go to the throne of grace. That's why the gracious big brother wept. They were imagining they were at odds with one another when they weren't. He did everything necessary for them to be reconciled. And so too has our God through his, the death of his own son. And then he weeps when we think apparently more needs to be done. Apparently the volume of my sin is greater than the volume of, of, uh, of your grace. And so we do what the brothers did. Verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him. And said, behold, we are your servants. No, they're not. They are his family. Servants. And we do something like this too with God. We come before him as beggars. What? We're sons and daughters of God. You don't approach your father that way you charge into the throne room of grace just as you are and you know you could do it because he's your father and so they say here's the deal joseph we've really done bad by you uh let us serve you and be nice to us that's called um salvation by human effort and we love it that, you know what that's called? That's called religion. Every religion is salvation by human effort. Please don't put Christianity in the same category as any other religion. Every religion is, oh, God, oh my, they outswit you. i got to climb this ladder of good deeds to get up to you. Christianity says you cannot climb a ladder as high as you need. Christianity says this is me condescending, coming down to you. This is me suffering and dying for you. So, so, so they want to be, they want to serve for their salvation. We'd love that. We'd buy that. But if it's not all of grace, it's not grace at all. You see, that's the deal. We don't have to add to what Jesus has done to procure our salvation. Folks, so many Christians go around thinking God is angry with them. It's not true. It's not true. So verse 19, Joseph said, don't be afraid. The most oft-repeated commandment in the Bible implying we live our life in fear. Fear of judgment, fear of rejection, fear of disapproval, fear of letting God down. Don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil for sure. You got to call it what it is. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Why? In order to bring about this present result, which is to preserve many people alive. You know what Joseph said? You don't get it. But a sovereign God uses all things to accomplish his salvation purposes. You betrayed me. You lied. You did all this kind of stuff. Take it easy. 
God made use of it all to use me as a vehicle of salvation. He used me to preserve many, many, many people. Joseph did not have Romans 8.28 at his disposal. For God uses all things for the good to those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. But he had the truth thereof because you don't have to wait for the New Testament to get <laughs> all of God's truth. God's truth is illustrated even in the Old. So though Joseph didn't have the text of Romans 8.28 in the Old Testament, he had the truth of it. And, and, and just to illustrate... Uh, what he said here, you know, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. To me, that is perhaps the clearest, strongest declaration of the sovereignty of God in all the Bible. Not that he condones evil and evildoers. I, I, nobody is saying that. But that he can accomplish his purposes even through evildoers and evil ones. So a man named Dave Guzik came up with this wonderful idea. I paraphrased it. I want to share it with you. If Joseph's brothers never sold him to the Midianites, he would never have gone to Egypt. And if Joseph never went to Egypt, he would never have been sold to Potiphar. And if he was never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife could not have accused him falsely of raping her. And if Potiphar's wife never falsely accused him of rape... He, he would not have been put into prison. And, and if he was not put into prison, he, he would not have met the baker and the butler of Pharaoh. And if he didn't meet the baker and butler of Pharaoh, he, he would not have interpreted their dreams. And if he didn't interpret the dreams of the baker and the butler, he would never have been given the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And if he never got to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he would never have become prime minister. And if he didn't become prime minister, he, he would never have had the opportunity to so wisely administrate circumstances around the world during a time of severe famine. And if he never was promoted to, to the position of key administrator during this time of famine, then his family back in Canaan would have perished from the famine. And if his family back in Canaan perished from the famine, then the Messiah could not have come forth from a dead family. And if the Messiah could not come forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, then we are all dead in our sins and without hope in this world. That is the providence and sovereignty of Almighty God making use of all things for the good. And Joseph said, don't give yourself more credit. Don't even give your evil inclinations more credit than you think. You cannot interfere with the plans of God, part of which is to save, not to destroy. And though you sought to destroy me, God made use of it to make me a savior, not only for the Israelites, but also for many in Egypt during this time of famine. Folks, if you're a Christian, God is not angry with you. He has forgiven you. Do you know what it's like to be pardoned, forgiven, not on the outs with the judge of all the earth, to be considered a son and a daughter, a family member, to be called one whom God will never forsake evermore. Do you know what it's like? It changes your, even, your posture even. The depression, the weight of perceived rejection and 
disenfranchisement. It actually affects your posture. And then you realize, wait a second. I'm okay with God because of the merits of Christ, because of his grace. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because of all of that, you, 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 live, you walk around you, you, with your head held high. You, 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 and when you sin, you know what you do with it? You repent of it. You confess it. You get on with life. I was a missionary in Germany um, uh, years ago. And I, I was with a group called the Navigators. And where's, where's Emmanuel? Emmanuel's dad, who's with the Lord now, was with Marion. Uh, I just introduced Marion because she's from Germany also. Uh, anyway, Emmanuel's father was just giant in the faith. And he was with this group, the Navigators, long before I could spell Navigators. Anyway, <laughs> he knew the founders of the group, but his father and I ended up in the same organization, which is, which I think is just uh, interesting. You should treat me with more respect. Um, uh, uh, just a thought. But anyway, uh, so, uh, so I was with the Navigators, and, and I was assigned to Germany, primarily Heidelberg, Germany. Heidelberg, beautiful, uh, unbelievable, beautiful place. And uh, the guy, the missionary I was replacing, took me around, showed me this, showed me that. This is where you'll. You should do this. You should. This is your assignment. A lot of guys are here. It was with American military in in Germany, because the German people themselves were unreachable, too hard-hearted. You know. You know how you are, Marion. You know what I'm saying? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The, uh, my ministry was American military in in Germany, and uh, in the course of riding around, uh, I shouldn't misrepresent this guy. There was a context. In the context, he made the statement. You know, uh, I've been a Christian for many, many years. He said. And in all that time, I don't think I've been out of fellowship with God more than 15 minutes. What? So I'm thinking, this guy's either like a psychopathic liar or worse, he's a nutcase and he's driving the car. <laughs> what do you mean, out of fellowship, 15 minutes? But then I listened to his explanation. He wasn't saying he hadn't sinned. He's saying when God, uh, the Holy Spirit in him, convicted him of sin, pointed it out. He didn't waste any time calling it what it is. He didn't call it a mistake or a bad turn. He didn't blame it on mommy or daddy. He said, oh God, I have sinned against thee. Then he said, um, thank you God for forgiving me. I call it what it is. It is sin. I agree with you. It's sin. But I also agree that it's forgiven. And now, would you help me not to do it again? Would you strengthen me? He said, boom, just like that. This was amazing. What a godly man. He didn't wait. Yeah, I'll tell you what we do. We wait to find an offering to give to God so that we can bolster up our case in requesting him to forgive us. You know, so we go on a missions trip or we fast once in a while. Who knows what? Or, you know, uh, I don't know. If you go listen to contemporary music if you don't like that. Whatever, I mean, whatever. They do. You know, we do something that hurts <laughs> so that we can say to God, look at, look at what I've done. And all, you know, you know, but the Bible says that God doesn't delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings. You know what it says? A broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, that will not despise. My friend said my heart would break when I realized I had sinned against God. I didn't plead for forgiveness. Why are you asking God for something you already have? Joseph forgave his, 
his, his boys 17 years ago. When did, he forgive, when did Jesus forgive you? It was in the past. And when Jesus obtained our forgiveness 2,000 years ago, all our sin was future from it then. All of it was covered by his blood on Calvary. So, so my friend would say, I thank him for his forgiveness. I call sin what it is. Oh, God, strengthen me so I don't do it again. And then I just get right back in the race as if I'm, I'm still in the race. You know, I got off track a little bit, but he said in total, no more than 15 minutes, my entire Christian life. And then I realized, oh, my goodness, that's a godly man. I had to follow his example. I didn't do so good. But the schnitzel was delicious. <laughs> so, um, so, so this is the point. So 17 years, and Joseph's brothers, upon whom he pronounced forgiveness, are still acting as if he's angry with them. Do you do that? Don't answer this. Do you do this with God? He's not angry with us he's not angry with us don't stay out of fellowship don't stay out of communion call sin what it is confess it agree with God that it's been forgiven don't fear God's response thank him for grace and mercy and forgiveness and press on now as we draw to a close here Joseph says verse 24 I'm gonna die he says to his brothers God's going to take care of you and bring you up. Oh, I love that. You should write that somewhere. God will take care of you and bring you up. <laughs> they were afraid of stuff. He said, don't be afraid. God's going to take care of you and bring you up. That's, that's a good thing for God's kids today. God's going to take care of you, and he's going to bring you up to your place of promise. It's called heaven one day. God's going to oh, I'm going through this, I'm going through it. Yeah, that's right. God's going to take care of you. Yeah, but look at me. I've, I'm a sinner. I'm just, God's going to take care of you and bring you up. It's all of grace. That's what Joseph says. He's going to bring you up from this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First time in the Bible, all three are listed together. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know what Joseph says? Just like his daddy. Um, I'm going to die here. But don't bury me here. Take me up to the place of promise. Why? And here's what happened. He's, he was embalmed. I do not think he was buried in the ground. I think he was put in a uh, coffin above ground, waiting to be carried up back to the land of Canaan. By the way, Moses did it. When? A long time later. A like hundreds of years. What's the idea? Think about this. He's in this box somewhere in Egypt. And a bunch of Egyptian kids, a bunch of Jewish kids are going by. And they're saying to their parents, Mommy, Daddy, what's up with the guy in the box? Isn't that, wasn't he like the prime minister of Egypt? Why isn't he buried in like a big pyramid somewhere like everybody else? And then they would have a chance to say, well, because this man believed in the most high God. Who said to his grandfather, to his uh, father to him that he had another place for them a place of promise and though he's in Egypt his heart is in that place of promise and just as an example to us because we could go to that place of promise too that's why the man's in the box that's what he did did it work out well, you might say not really I mean Abraham died Isaac died Jacob died sure it worked out What's the name of the next book of the Bible after Genesis? Exodus. You're darn tootin'. They're getting out.
and so are we. We're in an Exodus journey right now. This is not our home. God will take care of us, and then he will bring us up to the place of promise. And we ought to be object lessons for our kids and grandkids, too. We're here, but we ought to be living for there. Okay, folks, that's Genesis 50. One closing thought. Uh, it began with creation. It ends with a coffin. That's not a good ending. Have a good day. You know what that's all about? That's the effect of human sin. God began with creation of which he said it's very good. We messed it up. The result, a coffin. But that's not the last chapter. Up from the grave, he arose. Jesus won victory over the last enemy, death. Those of us who believe in him, follow him. He's the first fruits of life from death. We follow him. You know what the last word is? Paradise lost will be paradise restored. We will live forevermore in a garden city, the likes of which will make the Garden of Eden pale in comparison. Grace of God. We're not working for it. We're not making commitments. We're not doing New Year's resolutions. We're not promising. We, you know, we're not doing any of that. We're saying, oh, God, I believe you. Religious leaders said to Jesus one day, as recorded in John chapter 6, they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? We love the word work. We don't get grace. We like the word work. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe him whom he has sent. That's the hard work. Take Jesus at his word. He's cast all our sins behind our back. He's separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He said, I've adopted you into my family. I've made you a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. You're a people for my own possession. He says, the work I began in you, I'll complete it until the day when I return. He said, I will present you before me one day, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What's the work of God? Believe what Jesus has done. Believe what Jesus has said. And if you don't, you make him cry. That's what makes him cry. Don't do it. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. God of all grace, unmerited favor. Oh, God, it alleviates our fear. Thank you for your unmerited favor. Help us to bask in the sunlight of it and to live in accordance with it so that people will see in us a hope that demands a question so that we could tell them about you, the God of all grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Blessings to you folks. Lord willing, we'll be in verse 1 of First Thessalonians chapter 1 next week.